Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history in 20-minute episodes. I am your host, Hazel Baker, a qualified London tour guide and CEO and founder of London Guided Walks. Find us on Twitter at guided underscore walks, Instagram at walk underscore London, or indeed we're also on Facebook at London Guided Walks. We have lots of lovely guided walks, private tours, treasure hunts, virtual tours, virtual treasure hunts for Londoners and visitors alike to enjoy. And all the information you can find for that is on our website, londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Our blog is regularly updated with posts written by our passionate team of qualified London tour guides. And there are literally hundreds for you to choose from, all absolutely free. And don't forget, also, we have show notes attached to every single episode with a transcript and any photos, maps or videos that we may have as well. And even though we have a number of pictures and videos to share with you today, it's not necessary in order to enjoy the podcast. So let's get to know the man behind the National Gallery. No trip to London would be complete without a trip to the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square. It was founded in 1824 and houses a collection of over 2,300 paintings dated from the mid-13th century to 1900. But everyone's got to start somewhere. And today we'll be looking at John Julius Angerstein, the founder of the original National Gallery. I want to get to know him as a man, as a businessman, and also as a host. So join me in the next 20 minutes where we get to know him a little bit more. Born in St. Petersburg in 1735 to an old and highly respected German family of merchants who had settled in Russia. At the age of 14, he emigrated to England and started work as a junior clerk at the counting house of Russia merchant Mr. Andrew Thompson, who frequented Lloyd's Coffee House in Lombard Street. Angerstein rose through the ranks to become a merchant and underwriter himself and became to be known as one of Lloyd's Coffee House's most respectable members. Lloyd's Coffee House moved out of Lombard Street and into Pope's Head Alley, which was unintentionally to become a temporary solution. Towards the end of 1771, 78 underwriters met in Pope's Head Alley, where they each committed to the plan for building or removing to another house or the more commodious reception of the gentleman underwriters. There is a thick leather-bound book, slightly tinged at the edges, but thankfully having survived the fire of the Royal Exchange in 1838, and it's here that shows some wonderfully sounding names to the underwriters that had signed this agreement, and names such as Joshua Mendes de Costa, Cornelius Donovan, Godhard Hagen, and Marmaduke Peacock. Each of these underwriters had committed £100 into the Bank of England. John Adams had been tasked with creating two designs, one for the redevelopment of the current building and another for a brand new building on the same spot. Angerstein is often called the father of Lloyd's, but do you know why? After two years of little progress for a permanent home, it is then that the 38-year-old Angerstein, the rising star partner of the House of Thompson & Co, suggested a suite of rooms on the first floor of the northwest side of the Royal Exchange, used by the British Herring Fishery Society. 
The Mercer's company were the proprietors and had agreed to lease it to the underwriters should Angerstein become personally responsible for the rent of £180 per annum. And so the underwriters of Marine Insurance moved into the Royal Exchange. And this is where the name of Lloyds of London was to become world famous. Angerstein seems to have been well respected by his counterparts, having acted as their chairman of the committee from 1790 to 1796. It was diarist John Farringdon who described Angerstein as a man when his name appeared on a policy. It was a sufficient recommendation for the rest to follow where he led without further examination. In my attempts of getting to know the man, well, we already know what he looked like, as there are several paintings of him. The most famous one of him hangs in Lloyd's of London, but the earliest portrait of Angerstein is by Sir Joshua Reynolds, who portrayed him in 1765. Angerstein was a good man of business, and his business efforts still ripple through Greenwich, with an Angerstein business park, an Angerstein pub, and even Angerstein Wharf. This grew so large in the 19th century that it had to build its own Angerstein branch line to run goods trains into the main railway line into Kent. And this line is still in use today, mainly by the aggregates of the area. And we can hear him in his own words from his testimony at the Parliamentary Committee in 1810. And I get a sense of him being a very sensible and clearly an astute businessman who knows nothing is perfect and it's best to be prepared to negotiate as everything has a price. In 1803, Joseph Farrington noted in his diary that Mr. Angerstein might have been at the head of popularity in the city, but has chosen to associate chiefly at the west end of town. He also seemed to have a little bit of a, a brand, a uniform going on, if you think of Apple Steve Jobs with his black turtleneck, or indeed uh, Zuckerberg with his stonewashed jeans and somewhat slightly dodgy T-shirt. For Angerstein, he wore a blue coat, striped waistcoat, drab cloth breeches and buckled shoes. Strangely, this isn't what we see of him in his portraits, but of course, for a portrait, a bit like a selfie, you wear your best clothes. He was a man who appreciated punctuality, just like myself. He insisted on his meals being served punctually, with no waiting for late arrivals. Portrait painter Sir Thomas Lawrence wrote to Mrs Angerstein, The Duke of York sits to me in the morning, and after him, an appointment made in the presence of His Majesty, Lady Elizabeth Cunningham. She comes at two, but is not usually punctual to the hour. Now, if I could bribe Mr Angerstein's cook to delay dinner a quarter of an hour and gain over his clocks to the conspiracy... I might possibly keep my appointment with the lady and yet enjoy the company of my kind friends. It is now, however, too late to wait for your answer to decide me. I will trust my fortune and take my chance in coming in for soup, or for that state the dessert that may preserve me my rightful and long-established station at the dining room door. And Angerstein was clearly a family man. In 1771, he married Anna Crockett, widow of Charles Crockett and daughter of Henry Mulliman, a South Sea Company director, banker, Danish consul in London and Russia Company consul. 
I think that's what you call mixing business with pleasure. And they had two children, Juliana, who married General Sablukov of the Russia service, and then also John Angerstein, who became an MP. His wife Anna died in 1783 after 12 years of marriage and two years later he married Eliza Lucas, daughter of the Reverend Joseph Payne and widow of Thomas Lucas, a director of the South Sea Company and president of Guy's Hospital and West Indies Merchant. He's a man who supported small businesses too, including Henry Greathead, the inventor of the lifeboat. And you can read my blog post about this in the show notes. I'll put a link there. He also instigated a £2,000 donation for Henry Greathead. And this was the catalyst for the creation of the Patriotic Fund, which would provide aid to animate the efforts of our defenders by sea and by land. It is expedient raised by the patriotism of the country at large. And also it was triggered in 1813 by the resumption of the Napoleonic Wars by the declaration of war against France. Who's behind the Patriotic Fund? No other than our very own John Julius Angerstein and his neighbour, Sir Francis Baring of Baring's Bank. He was a man of high society. In 1774, when Angerstein was 39 years of age, he commissioned George Gibson to build a handsome country villa on the top of Mays Hill, Greenwich, with views of the River Thames. Greenwich was, at this time, still surrounded by country estates whose proximity to London made them attractive for both busy and fashionable people. The house was to become known as Woodlands and was visited by George III, Princess Caroline, wife of George IV, and many other notables, including Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger. The designer of the house was George Gibson, and to some seemed an odd choice, for there were much bigger players out there which Angerstein could certainly afford. But Gibson had local connections, and he himself had built a house on the other side of Greenwich on Lone Pit Hill in Lewisham. And that had originally had six acres of land, even now that's now vastly reduced. Oh, it's an early example of stone cladding too. The building is brick with an outer skin of stone, reputed to be from the old London Bridge. Gibson was a keen collector of the arts and had filled his unusually styled home with collections of poetry, including one, the coronation of Queen Caroline, and curiosities in art from his trips to Italy. The house became known locally as Comical House. The name then changed mid-19th century to the Stone House. And this house still stands behind its walls and you can get a glimpse of it on the top level of a double-decker bus. For a more intimate viewing, keep your eyes open for its listing in Open House Week in September. According to Howard Colville's Biographical Dictionary of British Artists, Gibson was too much a gentleman to care much for building sites. He would rather sip claret, drink his Madeira, chat about art and music and take snuff with a gusto than ascend ladders, tramp scaffolds to see how bricklayers filled in their work. Perhaps it was their mutual affection and appreciation of the arts which gave Angerstein the confidence in hiring Gibson. Gibson was also employed by the future Queen Caroline, who was a friend and frequent visitor at the Angersteins at Woodlands. After her estrangement from the future George IV, Princess Caroline moved to Charlton 
and then to nearby Blackheath. Antiquary Samuel Lysons wasn't a fan and wrote about a behaviour following a party at Woodlands. The princess is grown very coarse and she dresses very ill, showing too much of her naked person. Apparently she stood with her back to a table the whole time, which prevented every other person from sitting, this being the etiquette. On another occasion, she teased the Swiss artist Fuseli so much and he was staying at Woodlands, but he left the very next day. Thanks to diarist Joseph Farringdon, we get a glimpse of Angerstein at home. In 1804, Farringdon was Angerstein's dinner guest. We dined at six o'clock. The dinner of the two courses, a fine turbot at the top, a sirloin of beef at the bottom, vermicelli soup in the middle with small dishes making a figure of dishes. The remove roast ducks at the top and a very fine roast poulet at the bottom, macaroni, tartlets etc etc. Afterwards parmesan and other cheese and caviar with toast. Champagne and Madeira were served around during dinner. While the conversation went on he for some time slept. After he woke he ate an orange with sugar. He appears to consider his health, but looks very full and wet. By this time, Angerstein was in his late 60s, so perhaps we can excuse him a mid-dinner snooze. As with the National Gallery in London being a compulsory uh, stop, well, the Louvre in Paris is the same. In the lower rooms of the Louvre, which one must pass through after exhausting oneself in the main exquisite galleries are the English paintings. And it's here where you will find two paintings of the Angersteins, both of them by the artist Thomas Lawrence. Angerstein and his second wife Eliza Payne were among the first to appreciate the talents of the young artist Thomas Lawrence. His 1792 double portrait of them is one of the first most important works of Lawrence's career. He painted it when he was 23 years old, during his British early years, when everything was coming together and his work was crowned with success. Being an artist, Lawrence was repeatedly in debt and Angerstein frequently lent him money, most of which Lawrence never paid back but he maintained close ties with the Angersteins and received further commissions, including painting Angerstein's son, daughter-in-law and grandchildren. And it's the portrait of the grandchildren that is the second painting that you can see in the Louvre. With the assistance of artists such as Joshua Reynolds and Benjamin West, Angerstein started to establish a collection of old master paintings. In total, he collected 38 important works of art. Some were displayed at Woodlands and others at his rooms at his townhouse at 100 Pall Mall. Many of Angerstein's earlier purchases of pictures for his collection were by British artists. Angerstein also owned Hogarth's Marriage a la Mode and also Hogarth's self-portrait with a pug, which is now in the Tate, London. 
and also three monumental paintings by the Swiss painter Fuseli of the scenes from Milton's Paradise Lost. I'm not sure if Angustin bought these before or after Fuseli had run away from Princess Caroline. The French Revolution brought an immense number of works onto the art market and it was at this time when Angerstein became most active as a picture buyer. He purchased the giant Raising of Lazarus by Sabiano de Piombo from the sale of the Orleans collection in 1798. He acquired Claude's landscape with the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca and its pendant seaport with the embarkation of the Queens of Sheba considered among the most famous paintings in his collections via art dealers. It was in the sale of the late Sir Joshua Reynolds collection where he bought Van Dyck's portrait of George Gage with two attendants. By 1804, Angerstein's collection, at that stage consisting of only 25 paintings, was said to be the best and most celebrated collection in Great Britain. Upon his death, he was buried with his two wives in St. Alphagus's church in Greenwich, and as he had directed, his collection should be kept intact unless it remained in the country, in which case it should be bought by the government for the nation. Lord Liverpool was Prime Minister at the time, and he wrote to George IV, who responded and confirming the collection should be purchased, and that letter is now housed at Lloyd's of London, and I'll put a little link of the video there. Angerstein died in 1823 and by then we still didn't have a national gallery and this was something of an embarrassment especially since the French had opened the Louvre in 1793 with an exhibition of 537 paintings. And so the collection of Angerstein and being situated in Pall Mall, very close to the heart of London, seemed the perfect time to strike. The government finally parted with £57,000 for the collection and took over the lease of 100 Pall Mall. In 1824, the paintings had been hung on public display, essentially Britain's first national gallery. There had been a number of different motives in order to get a national gallery started. First up, well, to promote the existence of British School of Artists, but also looking at the experience of fine paintings would enhance the lives and the experience of a broad mass of public in England to increase their tastes and sense of design and to elevate their consciousness. Saying that, though, there were still limits. Public didn't really mean public. It wasn't open to all levels of society. So there was a broad public access. Um, however, you still needed to be reasonably well-dressed, as well as not being a member of the suspect classes, the very lowest of low orders, or indeed the mob. There is a painting of the rooms of 100 Pall Mall with the paintings on display in the Victoria and Albert Museum. And this is done by Frederick Mackenzie and it's in the Prince and Drawing study room. In the watercolour, it's a painting of paintings and uh, there are students at their easels making copy of the works on display, which must have happened in real life. The rooms at 100 Pall Mall were demolished before Mackenzie exhibited it at the Old Watercolour Society in 1834. 
There was one painting that wasn't sold as part of the collection for the nation and was a full-size replica of Reynolds' holy family. This remained in the Angerstein collection until 1895, where it was sold for 280 guineas. So perhaps next time you're at the National Gallery, you'll want to pop next door to the National Portrait Gallery, where they have seven portraits of Angerstein, in which you can choose which one to dob your hat.